How good are you at seeking advice and taking instruction? Have you ever been in a situation, before sat-nav that is, when you've been going to an unknown destination? As you're getting there, you get lost. Strange how in those circumstances they go out and take all the signs down, don't they? But there you are, meandering about in the car, trying to find something that will help you, when there's a voice perhaps beside you which says, why don't you ask for directions? <laughs> or perhaps you're rather like me, if you get a new gadget at home, we get something in, I usually plug it in, press the on switch and expect it to work. I mean, it's a machine after all, it should just do it. But frequently it doesn't. So you press various other buttons and one thing or another, and increasing frustration, my wife will turn to me and say, dear, why don't you read the instructions? Some of us are perhaps reluctant to seek advice, take instructions, but this is just now what we're going to look at over these next weeks, because this book, this first letter to Timothy, is in fact a letter of instructions to Timothy. Timothy, a young man who is now going to take up new responsibility in church leadership. And so Paul writes to him to give him advice. And although it primarily is obviously to Paul, to Timothy rather, uh, as a church leader, it raises issues as we go through the book which is very relevant for us as members of church to understand and appreciate. And so whilst it was written in circumstances which are perhaps very different to our own, yet certainly it's very relevant to us here in Abbey at this time. Proverbs talks about the wisdom of those who take advice. Proverbs 12, the way of fools seems right to them but the wise listen to advice. Where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Listen to advice, accept discipline, and at the end you will be counted among the wise. So may we become wise as we listen to Paul's instructions together. He begins with what he considers to be the essential, and that is teaching in the church. Obviously, from the clear statement about false doctrine, he makes the assumption that there is true doctrine. There is a balance of teaching that in fact is right, is truthful. But what is truth? Remember, that was the question that Pilate asked and which people have been asking down through the centuries, the lengthy philosophical discussions on what is truth, what is the actual meaning of it. For most of us, it's probably what we, what we see, what we understand. Think of what happens in a court of law. The witness is called to speak the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. That is what they've actually seen. They're not asking for their opinion. They're asking for what they've seen, the reality that is there. 
But there's a biblical sense in which truth ha has a very wide and all-embracing meaning. A fundamental truth. And this, of course, immediately goes against postmodern thinking, who decide, the postmoderns say, that there is no such thing as truth. And there certainly can't be a truth that encompasses and explains everything. But the Bible claims that that is just what it is. And Paul is exhorting Timothy that he remains faithful to that doctrine, that gospel message which has been presented to us. The truth that presents meaning and purpose for the way things are. And what is this truth centred in? It's centred in a person, in Jesus Christ. John opens his gospel, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He repeats that later in the chapter. And then we come to this remarkable statement that Jesus makes, recorded in John 14. I, I, Jesus, am the way, the life, and the truth. I am the truth. And so Paul sees that the very embodiment of truth is there in Christ. Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews begins his book in saying, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Remarkable statement. God has chosen to speak. The God who is there, the creator of the universe, has chosen to speak to his creation. It's interesting that Jesus is described as the word of God. He is the expression of God as God speaks to us. He is the very embodiment of truth. So Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. There is a, if you like, a package of doctrine, a package of teaching, which represents the truth. What is it? It's what God has spoken. It's what God has spoken. As the writer to the Hebrews puts it, Right through the Old Testament, God was speaking. If you remember back in Luke, after the resurrection, when Jesus came to meet with his disciples, he had this lovely Bible study with them. And he went over the Old Testament, each part of it, and he said, all the scriptures speak of me. They led up to him. And then that was added to us in the New Testament with the apostolic teaching, which was given directly to the apostles. What is then this gospel? Paul writing to the Corinthians sums it up. He says, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, 
which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Clearly Paul recognizes a body of truth which is important to teach. And so we look at his instructions to Timothy. We see first the reality and the importance then of truth. What he sets out there is that there are some dangers. There is the importance of the truth. And what is these three things we'll look at as we go through the chapter. And the first then, the importance of the truth. He points out, first of all, the dangers of false teaching. Two ways in which there is a danger. He refers, firstly, in verse 3 of our chapter, to myths and genealogies, which he says have no foundation in truth, but only lead to personal speculation and interpretation. He refers to this again in his second letter to Timothy 4. The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Don't we always enjoy listening to people who agree with us, who tell us things that we like, that we appreciate, that we agree with? How easy it is to look at the Bible and in fact read it even in a way which suits our own interpretation and thinking. But the problem is that it does not produce what truth is intended to produce. Verses 4 and 5 in the Message Translation. Apparently some people have been introducing fantasy stories and fanciful family trees that digress into silliness instead of pulling the people back into the centre, deepening faith and obedience. The whole point of what we're urging is simply love. Love uncontaminated by self-interest and counterfeit faith, a life open to God. And what Paul emphasising here, and what it's essential to see, is that God's word is not simply given to us to inform us, but to change us. It's not there just to inform, but to transform. So verse 4 in the NIV, the, truth, the purpose of God is to advance God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience, with sincere faith. When Jesus was asked what are the greatest commandments, he replied, the most important one is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. God is love. God loves the world, John 3.16. Paul could say, as he wrote to the Galatians, God loved me and gave himself for me. It's the very nature of God to reach out in love to his creation. And he wants us to return that love, to respond to it, to return it, to love him with all our heart and strength and mind and soul, with the whole of our being, to love God. And, says Jesus, the demonstration of the reality of that will be how you treat other people. It will be shown in how you love them. Jesus puts it in John 13, By this everyone know, will know that you are my, my disciples. Now, if we were asked, how is anyone going to know that I'm a Christian? Well, because I don't swear and I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't, it's all very negative stuff. What does Jesus say? How will people really know that you're one of my disciples? Because you have love one for another. The word of God is to accomplish the work of God, which is to bring about love. We're from a pure heart, a good conscience, and some fear of faith. Heart in the Bible refers to the whole of our being. And that's to be holy, it's to be pure. It's what God is looking for. Peter writes, be holy as God is holy. It's actually an ideal that we're called to, to live holy lives. A good conscience, meaning right self-judgment, and a faith with not a pretense, but a reality of trust. And it's these things that sound teaching are to bring about as we go into the word of God and listen to what he says. That is to bring about change in our lives. It is to bring about love for him, for one another. It is to bring about purity of life, a good conscience able to discern what is right, and a trustfulness in him. And then comes a section, verses 12 to 17, that is Paul's personal testimony. Seems to be a bit of a digression. He's been t telling Timothy about how he is to remain faithful to teaching the gospel, that comprehensive message from God. Now he suddenly turns to himself. However, rather than being a digression, it's the very basis and purpose of the truth. We've seen the dangers of the false, the benefits of the true, to bring about love and change and transformation in our lives. But now, Paul goes and looks at what is the basis of this? How is it valid? First of all, he talks about the source of truth. And this is what Paul does. And so that rather than being a digression, his personal testimony 
provides the very basis for the truth that Timothy is to teach. He writes about the mercy and grace of God. Sometimes it's difficult to distinguish what you, what's the difference between mercy and grace. Perhaps a, a simple definition is mercy is not being given what you do deserve and grace is being given what you don't deserve. So mercy is, is in fact a, a kind of negative thing in one sense. You're not being given what you do deserve. Grace, on the other hand, is positive. It's being given something which you don't deserve. So for Paul, this mercy meant that even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. But now I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength and considered me trustworthy appointing me to his service. Clearly Paul recognized that his situation was not one he deserved. But he not only experienced that mercy, but also grace, he adds. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The thought here is that that grace has produced then in Paul a response of faith and love. That was the purpose about it. Then he sums up the purpose of this truth that he'd been writing about. And as perhaps as a summary, he uses something which uh, maybe is in common usage within the church and perhaps was used in teaching new converts. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then he adds a personal comment of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and to give eternal life to those who believe in him. That sums it up. That's what the gospel, the good news, is about. And Paul says, if God can do that for me, the implication is he could do it for anyone. Then Paul finishes uh, this section with a further command to Timothy. And he refers now to the battle which Timothy faces. A command, a military term for Timothy to be faithful to his calling. And he describes that further on in chapter 4. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. He commands this because he recognizes that Timothy will be involved in a battle against those who in their teaching deny or mislead the truth. 
going back to those dangers. There were the myths and the genealogies. But then there were those who, in fact, appeared to be teaching the truth. They were talking about the law. They were using the Bible. But they were actually misleading. I remember going to a conference many years ago, preparation of camp leaders. It was addressed by Dick Lucas. I remember him saying this, which has stuck with me. He said, if you look at all the cults and isms that are around, you will find that either they want to take away something from Christ, that is, they'll deny his divinity, maybe, or they want to add something to Christ, saying that faith in Christ is not enough. You've got to do something else. And it's interesting, if you look at things like the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, that's, that's in fact what happens. They have a biblical basis, so it seems. But see it somehow in a misleading sense. And Paul says you're going to be fighting a battle out there. People who mislead. And the fact that it's going to be a battle is certainly relevant today in this postmodern attitude of there not being any truth. And so it will be a battle in proclaiming the truth. There's a saying some people have attributed to Francis of Assisi, but that doesn't seem to be right. But whoever it was said, we should preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Now, (laughs) that sounds fine, but the reality is, of course, we have to use words. We have to have an explanation for what it is God is looking for. God has spoken. He has explained what the world is about. He has revealed his character. He has told us about our character. He has told us about what he's done about it. And he's told us about what he's going to do in the future. The truth has to be proclaimed. It has to be spoken about. And it will be a battle to do it. But the saying is quite good in one sense, in that it does emphasize the necessity not only to proclaim the truth, but to live it. And it gives two examples of those who apparently were following the truth and now have given up. The message translation again of verses 19 and 20. Keep a firm grip on your faith and on yourself. After all, this is a fight we're in. There are some, you know, who by relaxing their grip and thinking anything goes, have made a thorough mess of their faith. Hymenus and Alexander are two of them. I've let them wander off to Satan to be taught a lesson or two about not believing. Unfortunately, this side of Christ's return, it will be a battle to live the truth. Christ said to his disciples, John 15, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Jesus didn't promise it was going to be easy. And there are many in the world today suffering severe persecution. I marvel at, at what some of these folk are going through. 
folk who turned to Christ and are turned out by their own families, rejected from their jobs, rejected on every hand by their community, yet they seek to live the truth. Remember, said Jesus, a servant is not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. We have an example recently, Tim Fallon retiring from leadership of the Liberal Democrats. He said he found it incompatible to lead the party as it's now going and remain faithful to Christ. One could see that by the lack of support that he had from people who just wouldn't accept his principles. Interesting, there was a discussion of this on the radio this morning, a religious program. One commentator said, well, it's all very well for politicians to have a faith as long as they keep it private and don't publicly parade it. That's exactly what folk want us to do as Christians. Yes, keep it private. That's fine. We happen to like going to church. I happen to like going shopping, playing golf on a Sunday. That's up to you. It's just a personal preference. But that's not what living for Christ is about. And it will naturally bring us into conflict. We need Christians in politics. We ought in this respect to be praying for Andrew as he takes up his role in the city council. We should thank him for his calling there and for his election, but we should be praying for him for wisdom and courage in the, the stance he takes and what he says. But it's also important not only as individuals, but as a community. So Tom Wright writes, to act and speak as Jesus will probably bring criticism, maybe worse, exactly what happened to Jesus as he questioned the action of the authorities. But for many people, this is exactly the problem they see with church. It is simply something one attends as a personal, private preference. In practical terms, it's irrelevant. That's what happens when you keep your faith private. When there's no distinctive result arising from it, and there's a further benefit from a properly functioning church pointed out by a U.S. theologian. The postmodern understanding of truth provides a great opportunity and a great challenge to Christians. Postmoderns are less impressed with well-reasoned arguments that supposedly prove the rightness of the church's claims to truth than with the life of a truth-embodying community. Consequently, when viewed from a postmodern perspective, the final answer to Pilate's question, what is truth, <laughs> lies in the fellowship of the disciples who live in the light of the crucified and resurrected Jesus by the power of the outpoured Holy Spirit. Postmoderns are converted to community before they are converted to Christ. They look to see the evidence of this reality, of the truth that we proclaim, 
does it actually mean anything to the way you live? You talk about all this. What's it doing to you? What's it doing to you individually and as a community? And so, as we leave here this morning, we go out into the world to which Christ has sent us, we'll be facing a battle to proclaim the truth. We'll be facing a battle to live the truth, both as individuals and as a church community. So may it be that we experience the reality and the power of the spirit of truth, who Jesus promised will be there to help us and to be with us forever.